Our reading this morning is from Philippians 3, 8 to 9. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surprising greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. May God bless these readings from his word. You know, last week, just before I gave the benediction, I made an unplanned, kind of off-the-cuff joke that I found to be terribly funny. Many of you did, too. Uh, I said something like, uh, if you're a visitor with us, rest assured, we do try to keep the service close to an hour. And this Sunday, it went a little longer. So if you're here on Sundays and you have an important thing to get to, like maybe you've got to see your parole officer at noon, uh, I don't want you to be afraid to come back. Now, I got to thinking about that afterwards. And uh, I'm going to say a couple of things. One, you're going to have to give me a fair amount of room. Uh, I, th this old Marine, sometimes I say some things that I think are hilarious that uh, someone else might easily take offense to. And uh, Christina routinely will give me a little kick and be like, hey, listen, Mr. Mr. Funny Man, you're not actually a stand-up comedian, and you need to be cautious about some of the things you say. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. Now, I decided a long time ago that the risk of potentially causing some offense was a price I was willing to pay for the sake of being authentic, for being just exactly who I am. I don't want someone to say he's a different guy in the pulpit than he is in the parlor. I don't want that. I, I, this is who I am. However, and I don't know, I don't know it to be the case of any of you, but if something like that were ever to cause you offense, feel free to talk to me about it afterwards because chances are I meant it in no offensive way. But the more I thought about it, the happier I was that I had said it so that I could say this. What if someone's here today that has to meet with their parole officer at noon? Right? In my mind, I was thinking like how absurd of a statement it would be because of some of the folks I know in this church. Like, of course, you don't have to go see your parole officer. But what if somebody did? If they did, it probably wouldn't be on Sunday afternoon, but maybe it would be on Monday. And if there were someone visiting or coming to church in this place, among us, us good religious folk. This is exactly where they ought to be. And anyone who would take offense to that, they, they clearly wouldn't know me. 
I grew up around parolees and drug addicts and criminals. If it can be said that there's like an A side of life and a B side of life, I'm from the B side of life. Those are my people. My first experiences in ministry were preaching in rescue shelters and and in nursing homes, people who were either suffering physically and, and in many cases mentally or people who were in addiction recovery. And I understood them well because that's how I grew up, surrounded by people. In, in some cases, who were on parole. In fact, when I said that, I thought of a certain uncle I grew up with who would have thought that was really funny. Here's the point. That song we just sang a bit ago, In Christ Alone. My, my whole aim for the next handful of minutes is to encourage us as to the reality of that statement. Princes and parolees find righteousness the same way. Religious people and rogue, out-of-bound people are the same people. Paupers and prelates. See, I was kind of trying to do a P, P's and P thing, because I'm a preacher, that's what I do. Paupers and prelates, a prelate is a clergyman, a minister, an archbishop, whatever, any kind of clergy person. They stand equally poor spiritually in the shadow of the cross. That means the homeless man on the corner in the eyes of God is the same as the religious man in the pulpit. That means the wealthy man who's basically done it all right in the eyes of the church and of men the difference between him and a parolee is minuscule so as to amount to nothing by way of the contrast between any of us and God's righteousness. Anytime I have that thought, I imagine a view of the earth from the moon. How much higher are your religious deeds and mine than the deeds of the criminal, the broken beggar, whomever. When you get out to a proper perspective, they're not that different. The, the Himalayas don't look any different than the foothills of Santa Cruz, California from the moon. So my aim this morning is onefold, that we would all leave here today more confident in our covering, more complete in the notion that our salvation and therefore our entire identity when rightly considered is in Christ alone. Not in our good works, not in anything we've done, not in our, our, our wealth, not in our position, not in our intelligence, not in any of that. In Christ alone. I'm convinced that a Christian life properly oriented is oriented squarely in the direction of God and His Word. And it's a fascinating thing that the more properly oriented our identity is in that direction, the more oriented our attitude will become graceful and merciful and, and generous and kind towards those who are not oriented in that same direction. There is a directly proportional relationship 
to the extent to which we find our identity in Christ alone, that we will have compassion and consideration on those who have not found their identity in Christ alone. The more in love with Him we become, the more loving toward those who don't know Him we shall be. And I'm going to keep telling jokes, man, but gosh, I hope that none of those jokes ever get in the way of the gospel. When we're saved, we're forever covered in righteousness. And as we continue along, the weight of that covering in righteousness, it's what changes us, not our own goodness. This message, which I'm already 25% through, I assure you, at least 15%. Okay. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, uh, so, so this message is ontological, okay? Who knows what ontological means? I know some of you do. Some of you are fabulously uh, academically oriented. Ontological or ontology is the philosophical study of the nature of being. That is, what is something? Ontology. What is it? This morning, this message, these thoughts, you won't hear any of this properly unless you get this at the beginning. This isn't about what we do. This is about who we are. Okay? This isn't about what we do. This is about who we are. And everything we do rightly is going to proceed from a proper knowledge of who we are. You know, I'm all the time telling my kids, you know, you're my kids. We, we don't do that. We're not trained that way. Here's who you are. Man, that's hard for me because... A lot of the things I grew up with, there's a lot of baggage to that Cerber name. That Cerber name doesn't have the best reputation in some parts of this world. And you know, early in my adult life, I reconnected with a great aunt who I'd never known since I was a little baby. And she started telling me all these fascinating stories about all these Cerbers who were these ministers of, of some note and, 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 and artists and all. And I said, whoa, wait a minute. So, so to be what I am really has value. It means something. It's not only this little bitty smidgen of a corner of what I understood it to be. Well, today, it, likewise, I, I just want you to leave here renewed in what it means to be a child of God. If you are covered in the robe of Christ's righteousness, then that's what you become. The reformer Martin Luther defined the righteousness of God as a righteousness valid before God, which may only be possessed through faith. What did we sing? In Christ alone. In other words, the righteousness of God is the righteousness that comes from God. It is God's way of making the sinner right before him, and it is a declaration legally. When we're made righteous at the time that we receive the grace of God by faith alone, it's, it's as though we're declared righteous. It's as though the judge, God the Father, hammers down his gavel and says, he's righteous, he'll, he'll not have to pay the sin debt. But more specifically, it's because he says, my son has paid it for him. And he takes off our rags of false religion. And he takes off our rags of do it my way. And he takes off our rags of self-security and having pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Who can even do that? I used to say when I was an arrogant Marine, 10 feet tall and bulletproof, 
I did this. I came from nothing, and now I did this. Later, God broke my heart, and I realized, how would I even have done that without him giving me the physical strength to do it? Or, or where did the will come from to do it? I wasn't raised in a way that I should have done that. In Christ alone. So he says, he takes off our self, self-reliance, all that, these filthy rags, and then he grabs the robe off of Jesus and then he puts it on us. He says, you're my son. He puts a ring on our finger like the prodigal son. He says, you, you, you are my son. You're mine. Christina, if you're on Facebook, wow, am I really the guy who just brought Facebook directly into the sermon? Okay, whatever. It's 2019, dude. Okay. So, so, uh, so. So anyway, uh, Christina just put this picture. She shared this memory from five years ago on Facebook, and it happens to be a video of the moment Carmelie met the kids. And I'm, and I'm looking at that thing, and I'm like, oh, man, that was only five years ago? What's God got in store for the next five? I don't think I can handle it, frankly. And it's like, hey, you're one of us. Here's some new clothes. Here's a new name. Why do you think the, the picture of new life in Christ all throughout the New Testament is that of adoption? That he finds us raggedy in our poverty. And you never met anybody poorer than she was when I met her. He finds us raggedy in our poverty. But our poverty isn't always materially. It's poverty of self-reliance. It's poverty of, I, I do it, I, it's, I'm strong enough for this, I'll make this happen, I'm intelligent, I'll do it. And he strips that stuff off of us, and then he, he puts a robe of, of righteousness on us, and that becomes who we are. It's not just something we wear. Righteousness is a declaration legally In a sense, here's your adoption decree. I'm your father because my son took your place of shame so that you could wear his robes of royalty. That's salvation. That's what it is. That's He did it. I'm the recipient of it. And I only can glory in God's goodness for any consequence of it. That's the other piece of righteousness. Moral righteousness. That's harder. So we're declared righteous legally. Christ took our place. We receive his inheritance. Now, we're not going to have to face the executioner's wrath. But then you say, and I, this is what I said when I started thinking about it, but what, what about my life? I'm not morally righteous. Like, I mess up. I sin. I make mistakes. Well, I want to say this. There is a sense in which what you wear becomes what you are. He puts that robe of righteousness on us, and then even if we do so kicking and screaming, the weight of it causes us to change. The reality of it starts to be our existential reality. It starts to be what we do, how we think, what we 
really are in terms of evidence of what we are. Does anybody have a favorite shirt? I know some of you, it's the one you mow the grass in, right? You're like Rocky Balboa when he goes to train and he's wearing an old raggedy shirt. And he tells Mick says, what are you wearing that old stinky shirt for? He says, it brings me luck. And Mick says, it, uh, it brings flies. <laughs> I know some of you got that shirt like that, don't you? It's still got holes in it. You're not letting it go. It, it didn't fit you properly for five years. You go mow pushing the grass, it, your, it comes up above your belly or your belly comes down below it, in my case. Now, I'm prone to that. I have favorite shirts. In fact, the other day, Christina said to me, hey, if you're going to keep making these videos and posting them on Facebook, you need to change your shirt more often. <laughs> She's like, you're talking about it's Monday and you got the same shirt on that you had on on Friday. I didn't wear it over the weekend. I just, I'm the kind of guy, I get a shirt I like, I wear it. I wash it, usually, and then I wear it. What you wear is how you're known. You know, my kids, they're so different. Man, are they ever different. I can't believe how different they are having the same parents and, and essentially the same influences. You know, they want to dress in a certain way. Sebastian, he wants to wear jeans that come pre-ripped. I'll never quite comprehend that. These are the cool ones, man. I'm like, let's go to the thrift store and just take out some scissors or something, you know. Why are we going to do that? Ephraim, on the other hand, you will never know how much pressure I get in my life to buy him suits. You'll yeah. never know. Only, well, one family in here at least knows because they have one like him. And uh, so, so they're so different. And then Carmely, well, Felicity just wants to be pretty. Her, de her definition of that is sometimes is weird, but she just wants to be pretty. Carmely, on the other hand, wants to be as sparkly as humanly possible. <laughs> and then Hansel, well... He's a six-year-old boy. I don't know what else to say about Hansel coming to church and it's five degrees outside and he's wearing sliders on his feet. You know, I don't know. I don't know. We don't, I don't preach a lot of sermons about good parenting. At least, I'm, at least I'm not a hypocrite. The other day I saw a picture of a Lions fan and he was completely dejected at yet another non-Super Bowl year. I think, I think the caption said it was like 53 in a row or something like that. And, uh, but he was still wearing his Lions jersey, hat, paint, and I couldn't see the pants, but I have to imagine they were, they were lion's pants too, I don't know. And uh, the caption underneath it said, at least Detroit fans can count on consistency. <laughs> and I was, and I, but this guy was still wearing it. I was like, man. You know, my, my, one of my grandfathers, he uh, uh, grew up in Detroit, uh, and then he's lived, I don't know, more than my life in California since moving from Detroit. And I remember growing up every Sunday, he'd still put on his Lions jersey. I remember him getting angry. And <laughs> that's all I really remember about that. And because uh, it, it kind of became a part of who he was, right? And that's my point. There is a sense in which what we wear is what we become known by. There is also a sense in which what we wear influences what we are and also is an expression of who we are. What do they say? Dress for the job you want, not the job you got. Wearing the robe of righteousness is how we know we're saved. That's how you know you're saved, that you're wearing that robe. And, I, and this is the concluding thought.
being covered in the robe of Christ's righteousness, that's how we know that we are saved. And you say, okay, that sounds great, preacher man. But that robe is invisible and spiritual. How do I know I'm wearing it? And then you say, I fail all the time, so what's the evidence that I am moral, that I am right, that I'm righteous with God? It's only being covered in that robe. Listen, here's three questions rather poignantly posed by the late Dr. R.C. Sproul. I'm going to ask those questions to you now and leave you with one thought as we conclude. I want you to answer them honestly in your heart. Please do not raise your hands. Uh, I want you to answer them honestly in your heart, and then I'm going to give you one more thought, and then, and then we'll uh, begin to conclude the service. Do you love Jesus perfectly? Again, don't raise your hand. Because if any of you raise your hand on that one, then we've got to have some serious, serious discussions after this meeting. Do you love Jesus perfectly? Now, you didn't have to raise your hand because if you're honest with your heart, right, you, you can't raise your hand to that question. Ask yourself in your heart if you love him perfectly. And then consider this passage of Scripture. John 14, 15 says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Wow, that's hard. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I say to my kids all the time, when they say, if, if, it's, if they've been acting really rough, they say, love you, Dad. I'm like, if you love me, do what I say. And they're like, yeah, okay, I still love you. Yeah, okay, okay. This then is the test of perfect love for Christ. Do we always perfectly obey his commands? No, we don't. Here's a second question. If you don't love him perfectly, do you love Jesus as much as you ought to love him? Someone in here is thinking, well, isn't that kind of the same question? Almost. If we answer no to the first question, then surely we cannot answer yes to the second question. And then the question is begged, well, then is there any hope for us? Yeah. Here's the last question. To this, you may raise your hand if you can say yes. Do you have any affection at all for Jesus? Any at all? Even a smidgen? Then I want to encourage you today, you have assurance of salvation because only those whom Christ has saved can have any affection for him at all. And why is that? Because our salvation is evidenced by us wearing the robe of righteousness, and that is something only God can do. So you can't feign affection for Jesus. Oh, you can feign admiration. You can feign a little bit of respect, but it's not possible to feign affection, love for Jesus. Now, that may sound like news to some of you, but it's the straightforward and most commonsensical message of the New Testament. In Romans 5, 6, it says that at just the right time when we were still powerless, that is, when we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Sproul goes on to say this, so if a person can answer yes when asked whether he has any affection for Christ, even though he may not love Jesus as much as he ought to or 
perfectly, that assures me. The Spirit has done this transforming work on his soul. This is so because we do not have the power in our flesh to conjure up any true affection for Jesus Christ. So the question becomes, do you have even a mustard seed of love for Christ? Because all of our affection, whether it be small or great, is the consequence of the gift of the grace of God. Remember what I said at the beginning, this is an ontological message. This is about what and who we are. This isn't a do more for Jesus. This is me inviting you on the basis of scriptural truths to think more rightly about who you are in Jesus Christ. When filled with despair at your future, imagine the Father saying to you infinitely more valuably than me saying to one of my children, well, you're, you're my son. I'll never let you go. You're my daughter. You'll, you'll never be abandoned in a place of abject poverty again because I adopted you. You have new clothing. The next time, you're like, I'm not sure if I'm even saved. Well, stop trusting in what we do. Parolees and Pharisees all stand condemned in the shadow of the cross, and all of our hope is in Jesus Christ alone. Amen.